Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to this episode of The Christopher Perrin Show. It's another podcast episode, and you can listen to this podcast just about anywhere on any podcast platform. You can also view the videos of this podcast by going to truenorth.fm or uh, the Christopher Perrin Substack or going to the YouTube channel of Classical Academic Press. But at any rate, I thank you for joining me. In this particular episode, I'm going to be talking about the canon of the great books. What, what makes for an authoritative collection of great books that are worthy of being recommended to others? I'm going to venture into this topic by considering how the biblical canon was developed over the centuries. It's a pretty interesting story in itself, and it provides a kind of analogy or parallel for any kind of authoritative collection of great books. So you can read an article about this on my substack, Renewing Classical Education. I've entitled it, The Two Canons, The Biblical Books and the Great Books. One of the famous songs from Gilbert and Sullivan's Mikado, if you've ever seen that play, is called I've Got a Little List. It's kind of a fun song. You can look it up. It's sung by Coco, who is the town tailor who has been elevated to the position of Lord High Executioner. And Coco has been told that if there is not soon an execution, the town will be downgraded to a village. And so he compiles a list of those people he finds irritating and undesirable, and he puts them on a list, well, for execution. And the song goes something like this. I'm not going to sing it to you, but I'll read the lyrics. As someday it may happen that a victim must be found, I've got a little list, I've got a little list, of society offenders who might well be underground, and who never would be missed, who never would be missed. There's the pestilential nuisances who write for autographs, all people who have flabby hands and irritating laughs, all children who are up in dates and floor you with them flat, all persons who in shaking hands shake hands with you like that, and all third persons who on spoiling a tate insist they'd none of them be missed, they'd none of them be missed. And then the chorus sings, he's got him on the list, he's got him on the list, and none of them be missed, they'll none of them be missed. Well, when the canon of scripture was debated through the years, back in ancient times, after short, you know, centuries after, a couple of centuries after Christ, some books were put on the list for dismissal from the canon of scripture. Marcion excluded Matthew, Mark, and John in 144 AD when he compiled his list. The book of Revelation was often on various lists for dismissal. Luther excluded the book of James, which he regarded as an epistle of straw. And James was on Luther's list, and to him anyway, it would not be missed. In the last chapter of the last book of our Bible, the book of Revelation, we read this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life 
and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. Don't take anything off of this list, lest you be taken off of the list. The scroll described here is the book of Revelation, not the entire Bible, but the principle is clear. No one may add to the writing of Holy Scripture. Just what, then, is Holy Scripture? And who gets to decide? What criteria are used to determine if a book is part of the biblical canon and thus regarded as Scripture? So if you're in the Christian tradition, how do you answer those questions? It's an interesting historical and theological question. It's the question of the biblical canon. The word canon is derived from the Greek, well, canon, probably pronounced a little differently than we do, which means simply measure or rule. It is a standard by which something can be measured and ruled in or ruled out. Does the book of Revelation meet the standard? It is, is it ruled in and regarded as part of the biblical canon? If we think that there could be a canon of great books, well then, what criteria would we use to rule a book in or out of, say, a canon of great books? Traditionally, there have been two canons, a canon of Scripture and a canon of great books outside of Scripture. Behind the development of these two canons is a simple human truth. And I'll summarize it this way. To select is to canonize, or to canonize is to make a selection. Every day, we must choose. So even in the mundane, when we choose from among multiple possibilities, we choose for meaning, we choose for what we esteem, we choose for what we love or what we prefer. Even reading these words, as I am right now, involves a selection process as I must choose for meaning as I select the pattern these letters form, selecting them for meaning. And you do the same thing. The Latin word legere, to read, and the noun lectio, reading, have selection at their root. They, it actually can mean to choose. Note the relationship between elect, select, collect, and say the Latin lectio, all involve choice. And the same is true with our word intelligence, which comes from the Latin word intelligere, which means to choose from among. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting to me, anyway. When you read, you choose to pattern the letters, bef the letters before you, making them mean. And when you understand anything, you have also come to see how things fit together. This is a kind of intelligence. Now, this was interesting because in the, in, the, in the ancient world, say, with Roman letters and Greek letters, letters were crammed together because parchment was expensive or vellum was expensive. And so there weren't, there weren't periods and there weren't a lot of clear space. There was a lot, wasn't a lot of spacing. And often the letters were all capital letters. And so for you to be able to read and understand what what when sentences stopped and began, you would have to make decisions. You'd have to select. You'd have to see the patterns. You'd have to choose. Hence, intelligere to choose among. The act of reading was a in the ancient world even more so than today was an act of selecting, patterning. A canon is therefore a collection from the Latin collectio and 
colligere, which means a gathering together of things, a gathering together of books by a process, well, of selection. Books that deserve to be in the same group. Just as humans collect butterflies, coins, and stamps, they collect books. The word Bible itself is derived from the Greek word biblia, and biblia simply means books in the plural, for the Bible is a collection of books, all selected by criteria, criteria applied by people, who determined that these books deserve to be in the same group that we call Holy Scripture. Using the word canon to describe the books of the Bible does imply that it is quite an important selection, and it is. Nonetheless, the Bible is a book list, a collection, even if a particularly important one. Christians regard the Bible as the supreme book list, the mother of all lists, the chief authoritative list, that which measures and assesses all other lists. But here enters a paradox. Humans seem to select the list, but the list seems not to be passive, calmly waiting our assessment and decision or judgment. It appears to be living and active, as we read in Hebrews 4.12, and calls out for us and even judges us. Thus, some regard the list of Scripture as a self-attesting and self-authenticating list, such that the books of the Bible are simply recognized for what they are, the inspired Word of God, and therefore the ultimate criterion that judges all things and which is judged by none. Some will say that, in a sense, the canon of Scripture chose itself. That's a paradox. Those familiar with ancient church history will know that there were, in fact, debates and discussion about what books should comprise a list of books considered to be Holy Scripture, inspired by God and thus valuable for all Christians to read. If the canon chose itself, it did not do so by some clarion proclamation or declaration. It was rather that by a broad consensus, the church recognized the canon for what it was by virtue of its own display of authority. Christ himself did not publish a definitive list of all the books that should be considered part of the Old Testament canon, nor did the Apostle John when he completed the book of Revelation, regarded as the latest book written in the New Testament, nor did John add a postscript to Revelation telling us that there were 26 other books, plus Revelation, that comprised the New Testament canon. So then, how do we know what books comprise the Old Testament and the New Testament canon? The short answer is that these questions were addressed by individuals and groups of people and eventually by church councils. It was an organic process and it evolved with various arguments set forth for what criteria should be used to assess whether a book was canonical or not. The church did not quickly resolve these questions either. There was no council held, say, in 125 AD, early on, to fix the canon and give direction to the church. Competing, least, competing lists were suggested, though in practice there was a good deal of common use of the same books in the ancient church, and this was going to be one of the arguments for how you would select the canon. What was everybody doing? 
Marcion, sometimes Marcion, was a heretic who believed that the God of the Old Testament was an evil creator whom Jesus came to destroy. He was also one of the first to suggest a canon of books in about 144 AD. His New Testament list contained only the Gospel of Luke and the writings of Paul. It was Marcion's published list that sparked a sharp and ongoing response by other theologians like Tertullian and a concerted effort to create a clearly defined canon. What standard did Tertullian and others use to determine what writings were inspired and should be in the canon? Tertullian and others responded by detailing what the church already was acknowledging in its practice as the authoritative books. Surveying the practice and beliefs of thousands of churches, bishops, and theologians, a number of factors were considered. What writings were generally accepted by the churches? What writings were universally read with edification? What had the bishops of the church said and taught on this subject? How often was the book quoted by great theologians and fathers of the church? In the case of the New Testament, what writings were clearly penned by an apostle of Christ? Though there was a significant unity of practice and belief in the ancient church, addressing these questions was not a formulaic process, and it took the church centuries to close the canon. It's not unlike the way, to me, that science proceeds. Science, too, asks questions that involve many factors, many potential causes. Why does the sun rise? Why do objects fall to the ground? Should Pluto be considered a planet? What makes the continents move? Why is fire hot? Scientific theories are never true or false. I know that may be a surprise to some of you. But read the scientists themselves. I know there are some who would disagree with this, but scientific theories are never true or false, but rather theories are strong or weak and subject to revision. Have you noticed? Pluto is no longer a planet. They're subject to revision or being replaced altogether. A famous example, the geocentric Ptolemaic theory was considered strong and established for a while. It was eventually replaced by the Copernican heliocentric theory. Well, enough about science. The development of the biblical canon proceeded in a similar fashion. The canon evolved. The great bishop Athanasius wrote his festal letter, number 39, for Easter, in 376 AD, and in that letter, more than 200 years after Marcion, we have recorded for the first time the list of the 27 books of the New Testament, the same books regarded as canonical today by the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, and Protestant churches. That was 376 AD. The canon for the Old Testament also evolved, but without is much of a clear consensus. The list of the Old Testament books cited, for example, by Athanasius includes the book of Baruch and excludes the book of Esther. Athanasius also creates a category, another category of books for edifying valuable books that Christians should read, but which are not canonical, not Holy Scripture. For example, the book of Wisdom, Esther, Judith, Tobit, the teaching of the apostles, and the shepherd of Hermas. He says these books should be read, but they're not scripture. He also mentions a third category of books that should not be read because they are misleading. 
like the Gospel of Thomas and First Enoch. That's interesting to note that three different categories were dis- discovered to be important by Athanasius in 376 AD. Canon of Scripture, edifying books that should be read, and books that should be avoided. There is not a present consensus today among Christians regarding the canon of the Old Testament. The Orthodox and Catholics include several books as canonical, like the Wisdom of Solomon, Tobit, and Judith, that Protestants regard as apocryphal. Now, apocryphal need not mean deceptive and bad and never to be read. It could be that second category of edifying literature that Athanasius described, but is not scripture. So when you hear the word apocryphal, some people, sometimes that connotes something you should avoid. It's not good. It's, it's deceptive. And sometimes it just means not scripture, but, but worthy of reading. As we study the development of the biblical canon, we have noted the organic and paradoxical nature of the enterprise. It appears paradoxical. It appears to be both human and divine. Have people, people, albeit highly qualified people, really chosen the canon, such that the canon owes its authority to those authorities who have selected it? Or has the canon been merely recognized for the authority that it possesses? However we try to see the matter, we see the human blended with the divine like we do with the two natures of Christ. There is present in this matter the aroma of mystery. If the scriptures are God-breathed, as we read in 2 Timothy 3, well then God's breath was put into the apostle Paul, Peter, and John, such that when Paul writes, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand, in Galatians 6. We take these not only as Paul's letters, written very large and in his own hand and script, but we take them as the very words of God. I have yet to hear a Bible study on this passage, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand, but I bet somebody has conducted such a Bible study or preached such a sermon on this text. Christians can enjoy the comfort of knowing that there is a universal consensus now regarding the canonical status of the 27 books of the New Testament. They must live with some moderate discomfort regarding the canon of the Old Testament. Well, now let's turn by analogy to the canon of the great books. By now you can likely see the analogy. The canon of Scripture has evolved and developed over time without a crystalline consensus. So has the canon of the great books. In both cases, the creation of the canon was a process, not an event. One canon, Scripture, is closed and no new books can be added. The other canon, the great books, remains open and new books can be added, even books that are not yet written. Both canons qualify books by a set of criteria. Both canons are set by people who apply those criteria, and often with differing results. Paradoxically, both canons also seem to choose themselves. The criteria we use to select them are provided to us by the books themselves. Considered this way, the canons are not so much selected as recognized. Since ancient times when books were available, Readers have recommended books, and a list of books 
as well to other readers, haven't you? Humans share what they love with others, whether they be recipes to prepare, towns to visit, or books to read. Educators charged with the responsibility for their students have had to wisely consider what books to require students to read, what books to recommend, and what books to pass over. Basil, writing in the 400s AD, offers such advice to his students in this short book, To Young Men on the Reading of Greek Literature, which I highly recommend. We can find such general advice as well in Augustine's On Christian Teaching. In Basil's case, he recommends that young scholars be like the bees. You've heard Bruce Lee say, be like water, you know, if you're going to defend yourself. Well, Augustine says, if you're going to read, or Basil says, be like the bees, which have natural discernment and alight on some flowers, but pass over others. Augustine suggests that readers should refine the gold of literature, removing the impurities, but keeping what is good and true in pagan literature. Both Basil and Augustine cite Moses and Daniel from the Old Testament as examples of figures who were learned in the wisdom of the Egyptians, that would be Moses, and the Babylonians, that would be Daniel, but who filtered their pagan learning and put it to use for godly purposes. And I use the word here pagan in no pejorative sense whatsoever. Just that thinking, that scholarship, that learning that exists outside of the covenant people of God outside of the church. Following the counsel and exhortations of Basil and Augustine in the 5th century, Christians have generally been glad to read edifying literature from outside the church. For example, from the Greek and Roman tradition, though with discernment and care. Basil warns scholars not to swallow the poison with the honey and not to mistake the thorn for the rose. Augustine warns his readers to take only the gold from pagan writers and reject the dross. In both cases, the criterion for filtering pagan literature is biblical teaching, or that which is true, good, and beautiful, as we understand those things in light of the incarnation of Christ. Basil and Augustine understood what is obvious to us all. We only have so much time, and we can't read everything, nor should we even do so if we had the time. What then should we read? What is it that we really should know and understand? How do I wisely, practically gain access to the best that has been thought and said? Who will be my guide? Such natural and important questions lead us to plan our reading with care and to the making of lists, book lists. Do you have a book list? What are you reading now? What are you planning to read in the next month or the next several months? Educators in particular should carefully craft the lists their students will read. Will Christian educators seeking to wisely guide their students recommend the same books to their students? Do you imagine that Professor Basil would have you read the same books as Professor Augustine? Certainly their book lists will be the same, right? If they are using the same standards of the true, good, and beautiful, they would be the same books of enduring excellence in harmony with biblical teaching that ask the profound, continuing, 
and universal questions, right? What about Professor Aquinas teaching in Paris in the 1200s or Erasmus teaching at Cambridge University in the early 1500s? Wouldn't their lists be the same? Well, no, their book lists will not be the same, though they might be similar in some important respects. Basil spoke and read Greek, Augustine, Latin. Aquinas knew Latin, but not Greek, and accessed Greek by translation into Latin. In Aquinas' day, Aristotle had just recently been discovered or rediscovered. Aquinas essentially brought Aristotle, who wrote in the 300s BC, into the literary canon of his day. Erasmus knew Latin and Greek in the 1500s, and he was a leading figure in the late Renaissance, a period that recovered and brought many ancient texts back into the canon in his day. The literary canon was evolving not by forward, straight-line growth, but also by backward study, seeking, and recovery. All of them perhaps would have recommended Augustine's Confessions, except Augustine himself and Basil, who did not get his hands on it. Sadly, none of them would have read Dante for the inconvenient fact that Dante had not yet been born. While the canon was growing, as it were, backwards, of course it was also growing forward, as Dante would eventually be born and write the Divine Comedy. From the 400s AD to Erasmus in the 1500s, Many new books were, in fact, written, great books, enlarging the canon. For example, the Canterbury Tales, Beowulf, the Song of Roland, the Summa Theologica of Aquinas, the Divine Comedy of Dante, they were all written during this time. The pool of books from which Erasmus might create a student reading list was necessarily larger than that of Aquinas, just as the pool from which Aquinas would choose was larger than that of Basil and Augustine. Each of these four professors, Basil, Augustine, Aquinas, Erasmus, each of these four would also make selections based on language, culture, and region. While Latin was the standard academic language in the time of both Aquinas and Erasmus, Aquinas had no direct access to Greek. Aquinas teaching in Paris might influence his selection in a way that differed from Erasmus teaching in Cambridge or in Basel. And the difference between the factors that would influence the choices Erasmus made would be wider still between him and, say, Augustine and Basil. For all of these reasons, the book list created by these four scholars spanning almost a thousand years would vary widely and understandably. The canon has not been static, but living and growing. It has grown not only forward in time, but it's grown retrospectively by discovery and rediscovery. Unlike the canon of Scripture, there has not been a focused, intense, high-stakes movement, say, over centuries, to fix and finalize a Western literary canon. There were lists made, to be sure, but not with the urgency and sense of crisis that the Church encountered over the question of what comprised the canon of Scripture, at various times creating authoritative, if not final, lists have been important. We see this with the anthologies collected by Cassiodorus 
and Isidore of Seville, for example, both of whom were trying to preserve reading of the great ancient authors after the barbarian invasions and the fall of Rome. Book lists and manuscript hunting and collecting increased during the Renaissance, which was the time of rediscovery and rereading of the ancient authors. If the Renaissance was a time of going ad fontes, back to the fountains, is not the current renewal of classical education a kind of renaissance? The current renewal is also going ad fontes, and our book lists, therefore, are growing and shifting as a result. Witness the various lists that have been created in the last 100 years. The Harvard Classics, published in 1909. The list compiled by Mortimer Adler and Friends in The Great Books of the Western World, published in 1952. There are lists compiled by school committees, like the lists presented in The Classical Reader, published in 2015, and the reading list published by established classical schools, like the Ambrose School. There are lists compiled by individuals, like the list in Honey for a Child's Heart, published in 1969 by Gladys Hunt, and John Sr.'s 1,000 Good Books, published in the Restoration of Christian Culture in 1983. And then there's David Hicks' list in Norms and Nobility, published in 1987, and Harold Bloom's list, published in the Western Canon, The Books and School of the Ages, published in 1994. The Classic Learning Test Team has compiled its own list, the Author Bank, they call it, by way of a committee that includes a large list of leaders in the classical education renewal. And none of these lists even pretends to be the final fixed and closed list. Google tells us that since the invention of the printing press, there have been about 129 million books published. Each year, about 500,000 to a million additional titles are added to that number. Of these millions, what books are the good books? Which ones are the great books? Obviously, we depend on others to give us guidance, to give us lists, even if it is a list of one. My wife, for example, has been reading Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age. Apparently now I will be reading this book. There are so many lists that there are even lists of lists, like one on a Wikipedia site that contains hundreds of lists of lists. If you're a college president or a chair of a department or a single professor, you work with authoritative lists either that you have received or that you create or both. If you are a school administrator, department chair, curriculum committee member, or a single teacher, you must do the same. We work with bibliographies list of books selected for us by authorities of one kind or another. We create bibliographies for our students. We create reading lists for our students that often contain, well, three tiers or categories. Remind you of Athanasius? Books that must be read for class, books that are recommended for reading, and books for further reference. Sometimes we even say, here's a book you ought not to read. While the biblical canon is fairly fixed, the New Testament anyway, there have been many times at which the church has been concerned 
to protect the biblical canon. As we've noted above, the biblical canon is not merely selected by thoughtful readers. It is recognized for what it is. The biblical books themselves speak with authority that commands our attention and respect. Charles Spurgeon used to say, The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. The Bible has also been called on many occasions an anvil that has worn out many hammers. There is no need to fret about the status and authority of the biblical canon. It can take care of itself. The same is true, I believe, of the canon of the great books. They too speak with authority that is not yet that has not been assigned to them, but which they already possess. They too have been recognized for what they are. These books too can take care of themselves. You might know that the word author and authority are related. It was the great actores in Latin, the authors who created books with actoritas. Before the age of the printing press, who would go through the bother, time, and expense of hand copying a book unless it was perceived to have authority? The majority of ancient books that we have have survived because people recognize them as worthy as of having and reading and copying and passing on. So then, what if someone argues that an old book should be read again as a great book? What if, for example, someone should argue that Christine de Pizan should be read in our classical schools? Well, first, if de Pizan has been copied from medieval times and then printed for generations, she could probably take care of herself. There is nothing at all wrong with someone suggesting that we read her. Some will take up the suggestion, and indeed will read her, and if she speaks with authority to many in our time, word will spread, and more will read her. But she will be read not because someone suggested that we do, but because de Pizan herself will compel her own reading and attention. Apparently, Tolkien suggested that we should start reading Beowulf in his time. We did. And Beowulf makes its own case for reading. So yes, we suggest books, but at root they suggest themselves and they make their own case and the best case for why they should be read. There are reasons why old great books get more or less attention at a given time in a given culture. Lewis tells us to read the old books because our own culture will have its own peculiar blind spots like all cultures do and that the old books from a different time can illuminate those blind spots for us. All cultures err, he says, but not all cultures err in the same way. We might not know our culture is growing soft and intolerant of hardship until we read the journals of Lewis and Clark, or Ben Franklin's autobiography, or Caesar's Gallic Wars, or Gibbon's The Rise and Fall, of the Roman Empire. Will de Bazan's The Book of the City of Ladies, which recounts and describes numerous classical and Christian women who exemplify virtue, wisdom, holiness, and leadership, will it be a timely read today? We'll let some of us read her. She'll make her own case. 
If enough of us think that she is a timely, authoritative voice, the word will spread and she will be read more often. Let us not forget, though, the prudent distinction between the good and the great books. Lewis recommended that we read the old books, but also the new ones. Let us use Tolkien and Lewis again as examples, as authors. The Fellowship of the Ring by Tolkien cannot yet be considered, in my opinion, a great book until it's been assessed for about a hundred years. The same is true of Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Virtually every classical school I know of requires the reading of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and The Fellowship of the Ring. These are recent books. They are good books. Perhaps someday they will be great books. Classical schools already follow a kind of informal 80 to 20 rule. About 80% of the books required are great books that have proven their worth and are at least 100 years old. About 20% of the books required are more recently published, even some by living authors like Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. These are good books. Let schools therefore read some good books that are not yet great and let them read them without objection. Let some schools read some old books with which we are not yet familiar like De Pizan and see what happens. The Great Books canon, analogous to scripture, is living and active and can take care of itself. Thank you for listening or watching to this episode of The Christopher Perrin Show. I really appreciate it. And if you uh, want to hear more of uh, my lectures or view more of my lectures, there are also some on classicalu.com. If that's of interest to you, please take a look. And once again, thank you. I'd like to thank you for watching or listening to The Christopher Perrin Show. And to do that, I can give you a coupon code that will give you 10% off on anything that you might care to order at classicalacademicpress.com. And the coupon code is simply CPSHOW. Thanks again for listening or watching.